0: overweight and look terrible but AIDS helped me lose 46 pounds
1: the AIDS diet plan helped me lose 28 pounds AIDS helps control your appetite so you lose weight yet AIDS lets you taste chew and enjoy and the appetite suppressant in AIDS is not a stimulant AIDS helped me to lose 18 pounds and it doesn't contain anything to make me nervous question why take diet pills when you can enjoy AIDS Listen, living, listening to Synchronon. Sick and
0: run Yes, you listen to the Synchronon. The Sick and Wrong, the world
2: source for antisocial commentary. God, what a bunch of scumbags. Good evening. Welcome to Sick and Wrong, the world source for antisocial commentary. I'm on your host, E. Simon.
3: Uh, guten Tag, mein Name ist Katz Rambo.
2: How's Tricks there, Kate Rambo?
3: Yeah, I just went German all of a sudden.
2: You did. Um, I'm surprised you didn't go Irish because uh, it was St. Patrick's Day. No. Were you knocking back some green beer, doing some Irish car bombs yesterday?
3: Of course I wasn't because it's an American holiday. But we, me and Sophie actually talked about it because we did a like a wicked British food special in it on the patron uh, when you were in San Francisco last weekend. So do you know what um, a Guinness and Black is?
2: Not sure. What is it Guinness in Black?
3: So, you know, we have a thing called squash here.
2: The, the sport? <laughs>
3: no, squash, as in it's a drink. We have a drink called squash.
2: I don't think I've had one of those.
3: I don't drink squash, so that's why you've never had it. But it's basically diluting juice, and it's like a very thick, concentrated, uh, fake... It's very fake... Uh, fruit juice and you mix that with tap water or sparkling water if you're very posh. But yeah, you just get blackcurrant juice and pour, pour a shot of that in your Guinness and it goes purple.
2: Guinness and black. prune juice?
3: No, it's it's like blackcurrant juice. Oh, blackcurrant. Do you guys currants. even have currants? Is it blackcurrants the Americans don't have?
2: Yeah, black I don't think we have that here.
3: Huh.
2: Does it keep you as regular as prune juice?
3: Well, a blackcurrant is a currant. I don't know what a prune is. It's a stone fruit, isn't it a prune? I don't mind a prune, you know, every now and again. I am an old lady when it comes to fruits.
2: I like being uh, regular.
3: <laughs> I'm a regular guy.
2: Well, yesterday was uh, St. Patrick's Day here in the U.S. And I was wondering, I was thinking about this, because, you know, it is a big deal in the U.S. And um, a lot of it's people wear green on St. Patrick's Day. Oh. I don't because I wear black every day. Um, but anyway, I was wondering about this. Who drinks more? The Irish? the Scots, or the Brits? All of us. Well, I was wondering, has there ever been an official drink-off between the regions of the UK?
3: Right, by Brits, you mean the English, because we're all British. Oh, whatever. The Northern Ireland, yeah. Same yeah, whatever. That's like the saying can- Canadians and Americans are all Americans when you're not, right? The limeys. Um, I would say that the hardest drinkers, there's hard drinkers in all those Countries, even yep. the Welsh, are hard drinking.
2: I'm just saying. Let's say all the regions of the UK put together their four best drinkers that they Top have in drinkers. the country, They're like the the most stalwart drinkers that they have. Sat them down and just at a pub and just had a Scots. drink off. Who do you think would win? Scottish. The Scottish,
3: Scottish are going to win. I mean, Scottish men die at the age of sixty-one for a fucking reason. Scots are going <laughs> to win.
2: All right, I want to I want to hear some uh, response from the listeners on this one, especially yeah, the, uh, the the UK listeners. Um personally, I fucking hate St. Patrick's Day. Always have. I avoid well, it like a hooker with cerebral palsy. Although I probably would try that once. Um <laughs>
3: <laughs> Are you like Christopher and the Sopranos because you're Jewish? St. Patrick's Day is literally hell on earth for your your people.
2: No, it's hell on earth because it's Filled with uh, amateur dickheads. Like you went, remember last yeah. year when you were here, we went to that accursed Molly Malone's bar up the street and oh, it, was it was just terrible. filled with dumbasses.
3: I do say this about America. If any of these fuckers who pretend to be Irish actually went to Ireland on a holiday, they'd be like, what a fucking shithole. No wonder we left this fucking godforsaken island. Ireland is horrible, it's not a nice place.
2: I like Dublin. I had a good time when I was there. Maybe Dublin it was like maybe it was my company. Sucks. Maybe it was the company I was with, but I had a good time at Dublin. It's fucking um,
3: expensive and overrated.
2: Well, you know, the the point of St. Patrick's Day is because uh, the Irish I was reading about this the other day. The Irish um, you know, had to leave because English people were selling their food. Wouldn't even give them wouldn't even help them during the potato <laughs> famine. So they left. And so it was a way to kind of celebrate the, the Irish and the di- diaspora, like that live all over the world. But the main reason St. Patrick's Day started is because the Irish in Chicago and the Irish in New York um, were just people just were so prejudiced against them. What and was it? No
3: a, Irish, no blacks, no dogs. Oh,
2: just on a regular basis. Yeah. They they um, you know received such criticism of flack and racism. So they were just like, fuck you. We're going to celebrate being Irish on this one day. We're going to wear green and we're going to get drunk as fuck and get into Good fights and just spill out <laughs> of the streets. And so it just became a thing. And then it just sort of caught on here. And then uh, just all the non-Irish and, yeah. people were like, well, we love to drink too. We're gonna get drunk and wear green and puke all over each other, just like the Irish.
3: Yeah, and it, it is love. Like the Irish. But I would say the Scots are the hardest drinkers of us of us all.
2: Well, I want the audience to weigh in on that. I you know, I've been this this week, I've been very I've just been it's been I've been relatively easy on the drink. I've been trying to take it easy because I drank a lot last weekend in San Francisco. And uh, I got back and I was feeling under the weather. I just wasn't feeling great. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take a little hiatus from the drinking. You know, my sister always throws memorable parties. I mean, it's kind of her job. She she can't just be like, because that's what I was saying. You know, she she had a party at her house. We talk about this on the second show, but she had a party at her house for Ozzy's second birthday. And I was just like, get a, some fucking cupcakes and a case of, you know, Miller Lite. Who gives a shit? Stephanie can't do that. It has to yeah. be, yo, know, it has to be a grand party. And not to mention her boss, who also can't throw a normal party. Um, <laughs> David provided a full bar, a top-shelf liquor that was there the entire weekend. So I was drinking good liquor, way better than what I normally drink at home. Uh, Wackerly showed up without his wife. Interesting. Oh. And my ex-girlfriend from college, who I haven't seen in years, uh, showed up there with her uh, long, long-term boyfriend, which was also very interesting. I, I, It was a good time. I go into all the graphic details on the second show. But what I want to chat about here is that uh, I had two bizarre rides to the Burbank Airport and from the Burbank Airport. Now, the ride from the Burbank Airport uh, to my car parked in my work was hilarious because there's an old Asian cab driver who was bitching at me the entire ride. You can hear all about that on the second show. I must I,
3: say that. Your impression of Leslie Chow has been my favorite thing at work this week, and we've all been walking past each other quoting it. It has now become a work thing.
2: (laughs) Well, it was funny. I tipped in 25 cents, put it that way. (laughs) Um, But I talk about that on the second show. But here I want to talk about the ride to the Burbank Airport because it's relevant to the topic of this week's show. So I love the Burbank Airport. I'll go on record saying that. And I try to fly from there whenever possible. You know, it's a fraction of the size of LAX, and it's just way easier to deal with. I mean, you saw it. We went. We flew to San Francisco from Burbank.
3: Yeah, I had a pint and some fries in there. Didn't you see Brad Pitt in Burbank Cons?
2: I've seen Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, and uh, I and who else? I've, I've seen um, a Bam Margera there. And, oh no uh, way! Yeah, and I've also saw this uh, on Friday. Uh, the guy that plays the Punisher now.
3: Oh oh, I. Got excited then because I thought you meant uh, Thomas Jane. Not Thomas doing?
2: Jane. It's the guy who plays the Punisher now. He also played Shane in the first season of Walking Dead. I forget the guy's name, but you'd you know his that. face. You you could tell tell right. him by his face. Uh, yeah, he was uh, grabbing or getting a drink uh, at the table next to me. I didn't say anything to him, but but uh, parking is a bit expensive there these days, which kind of sucks because that was one of the uh, you know the big plus sides of uh, going to the Burbank Airport is you could park not necessarily on the airport lot but there's like side, like uh, ancillary lots like around around the vicinity of the airport and there's one that i used to use for years seven dollars a day parked there all the time and you just walk to the airport but since the pandemic they've raised their price to like sixteen dollars a day
3: i was about to say seven dollars isn't bad stop being a jew but yeah oh, no, I did. Is a bit seven
2: dollars i would have a problem but now it's like 16 bucks it's like you might as well just park at the airport parking I mean, it's, yeah. you, you're, you know, you're right there. So, but anyway, since I work in Burbank now, I just leave my car at work and I take an Uber or a Lyft there. So last Friday I took an Uber and this very Armenian cab driver or Uber driver picked me up and uh, he was funny. He was hard to understand, but he was pretty funny. And so as we we're driving there, he was uh, telling me how much he loves the Fast and Furious movies. I, oh, I don't goodness. know why, but really? we were just talking about it. It so says it's his favorite movies. And I was like, oh, really? That's your favorite? He goes, well, it's not my number one favorite. And I was like, well, what's your number one favorite movie? And he said, Big with Tom Hanks.
3: Oh, it's Jimmy Jimmy <laughs> Pop, Pop Jimmy Jimmy Rock, <laughs> Jimmy Jimmy Go:
2: So as we were driving uh, to the airport having our discussion of The Fast and Furious, we passed by a John Wick 4 billboard. Because you know that Cannot movie's wait. coming Thank out. You. I think, is it coming out next week? Or April?
3: So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know when it's coming out, but I will be, it's like the one movie I go to the cinema to see. And I will support Keanu Reeves through everything.
2: I am looking forward to that one. So I asked the guy, I was like, so you you know, you like the Fast and Furious, so you're a big fan of John Wick. And he was like, God, oh, never heard of him. And I was like, well, I was like, and then he asked me, he was like, is this as good as Fast and Furious? And I was like, it's way better, it's way better. You know, he fights the Russian mob in the first, uh, in the first film. And so that got his attention and it sparked a conversation about the Russian and Armenian mobs. And then he, he lifted up his shirt and he showed me, he had like these Armenian gang tattoos from the old country. I mean, they're all faded and shitty, but I was like, he goes, yeah, they, they mean something. It was like this cross, you know, right here and this one. And he was showing me and, uh, it it was very difficult to understand. So I, I'm sure he told me what they meant, but I was, I was having a hard this time. This is
3: when I killed Babushka. <laughs> this one.
2: So he said that he worked for them in Armenia before he moved, the, for the Armenian mob before he moved to the States. And he said he moved here like 20 years ago. But it wasn't strange or odd because everybody worked for the mob there. It's
3: kind of, yeah, like the Odessa. Like, yeah.
2: Yeah, he said that, he goes, he was like, you know, they're, I mean, the way he made it sound is like they're a benevolent organization that took care of the community. Even the police kind of worked hand in hand with the with the mob. And it was normal. And that's just how society is how ran it's... there. And yeah. so I was like, well, what about the Russian mob? And he just was like, oh, I hate the Russian mob. He's like, you don't trust them. He's like, the Armenians work with them. You don't trust the Russians. Never trust a Russian. And I was like, so you just hate the Russians? He goes, yes. And I was like, what about Putin? He goes, and he really, really hates Putin. So I was like, okay, and I'm assuming you hate the Turkish. And he's like, oh, I hate the Turks worse than the Russians.
3: Well, of course he does. The well, Turks, like, fucking killed his entire people, killed yeah. his countrymen.
2: <laughs> so it, 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 that that I game. understood. That wasn't obvious. So then uh, we started talking about um, the Ukraine war and I asked him, I was like, so what are, you, what are your thoughts on the war? And he said, well, it's going according to the plan. And I was like, uh-huh. oh, really? I was like, whose plan? I was like it doesn't seem to be working out well for either side. And he's like, "Oh, well it's the Jews plan." And I was like, "What you, the Jews um, plan?"
1: <laughs> here we go.
2: <laughs> so then I asked him. I was like, "So what what are you saying the Jews are behind the Ukrainian war?" And he said, "100%." I was like, he goes, "Look, he goes, "Look at the uh, the president Zelensky, Jew comedian. How else do you get a Jew comedian <laughs> to run a country? Jews and then then he goes on to say Jews are behind every war that has happened in the past 100 years.
3: Yeah, so Jews were behind the Holocaust.
2: Well, that's what I said. I was like, uh including World War II. And he said, "Definitely." He goes, "How else would Israel come to come to exist?"
3: So they had to kill 6 million of their own people just to get Israel. I mean, Israel wasn't worth it, was it, Babes? <laughs> Chill out.
2: <laughs> well, that's what I said. I was like But there's a Holocaust, and like six million of them died. And he goes, it's all part of their plan. He's like, they're very smart, very sneaky people. And they have a secret (laughs) base of operations under Europe. So what they did, according to this Armenian Lyft driver, Uber driver, he said they picked the most intelligent and talented members of their race to survive. And he let Hitler destroy the excess. So it was like a. Sounds like
3: Charles Manson. That was Charles Manson's plan.
2: Well, that's what he said. The, the Jews that are running the world—that was their plan. So then I was like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll, um, I'll, 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 agree with you on that. Um, and I asked him, I was like, "Have you ever seen the underground base?" And uh, he said that you'd never make it that far. The Jews have advanced technology that is so complicated and secretive that they would, never, they, they would never allow you to see it and you'd never be able to find it.
3: Of course, like they would have advanced technology because they're very sneaky people who don't want to share.
2: Well, that's what he said. He goes, that's, he goes how do you think they control the world? And so I was like, well, what kind of a, like, technology are you talking about? Like, like artificial intelligence? Are they cloning government officials? He said, of course and oh jews have mastered time travel have you not me because i could do a lot I, I, I definitely wouldn't be doing this podcast if i i would go back in time and then when lance me and lance were sitting there getting drunk at the bar and he was like and and i said to him like do you think we should do a podcast i would just not say that and instead i would just order another drink
3: Hey, fuck you, because we met through this podcast, but <laughs> I would go back in time and I would, uh, you know, go back with lottery numbers and which horse won which fucking race. And then I would come back here and I'd be rich and I wouldn't have to work my shitty blue collar job.
2: Well, that's he what said, I do. Well, he said that's what the Jews have done because they've mastered time travel. And then he said, oh, you can never trust a Jew because they're always scheming. They control the world and we just live in it.
3: Well, you sat in the back with your huge Jew afro and your big Jewish (laughs) nose doing like, you know, just putting your fingers together, Mr. Burns style. (laughs) while he said that he was scheming in the back. How can I get this Uber ride for free?
2: Well, it was funny because as we were driving, like heading towards the the airport and we're about to turn into it, there's a lot of traffic. And so he asked me, so what is your ethnic background? And I was like, "Oh, Uh-oh. I'm Jewish." <laughs> he was like, "Did you say that?" Yeah, I was like, "I'm Jewish." You should and have
3: then, said, "I'm Russian Jewish," because you are.
2: Well, I guess yeah, I didn't say. I just said I'm Jewish, and he was like, "Really, really?" And I said, "Yeah, my father was a rabbi." And then he was like, "Really? Why didn't you tell me?" And I was like, "Well, <laughs> you never asked me." And then he just shook his head, and then he said, "I told you too much." And then the. the oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and then for the next five minutes, he was just silent like the rest of the ride to the terminal. And, we, and, so, really funny. Yeah, and when we arrived, he did get out and he took my suitcase out of the trunk. And then he just said, you should have told me. Very sneaky. And he just shook his head and he got back into the cab. Drove away.
3: Oh, it's- Oh, see, you've just bolstered his opinion even (laughs) forever that you're all just scheming. And now you know that he knows, the Gentiles know about what the Jews are up to.
2: I don't know what he thought. Like, he was just, he wasn't embarrassed. He was hurt. Like, he was crushed. Like, the way he looked at me, he was just like, seriously? Like, I didn't think you were a Jew. Talking all this shit about Jews. And you say nothing, and then you tell me you're a Jew. Sneaky.
3: Exactly. (laughs) He only wants to tell those secrets to Gentiles.
2: But that's the thing. I find the myths and the stereotypes about Jews fascinating because it seems like everybody has an opinion on the Jews.
3: For some it, reason.
2: Well, especially now, you know, it seems like, uh, you know, anti-Semitism is obviously on the rise. But what other race of people have been universally despised throughout generations of history?
3: You are talking to one.
2: White Women, people. Do. Women Women, okay, women, yes, but even women despise the Jews. I'm talking about like a like a race <laughs> even of women people
3: despise. Yeah, do. the
2: Egyptians, yes, the Persians, the Babylonians, Shakespeare. Like it, but you, you think about like Shylock, the Merchant of Venice. Okay,
3: I, I I got one to your question: Aborigines, who only were declared a people by the Australians, like what five years ago?
2: But Aborigines weren't despised through generations. It was just the Australians that maybe did that. I'm saying like throughout the, the throughout civilization, the history okay. of civilization, Jews have just been demonized, and I don't get why. Like, did why? I mean did Hitler hate the Jews because he thought we were a sneaky race that ran the world? Yes. I mean, personally, I take it as a compliment. I mean, you have to be an intelligent group of people to, you know, master time travel and, you know, run the world.
3: I do love the fear of the Jews. It's like of all the people, it's kind of like being like scared of a Buddhist. Like, you're just like warm and cuddly at the end of the day. Like, what is that to fear?
2: Maybe Maybe on the outside we are.
3: Oh, sneaky, sneaky.
2: Anyway. That's my long-winded segue into this week's historical topic: Yay. a Nazi SS commando, Otto Skorzeny, Hitler's own James Bond. Fascinating, fascinating Nazi. In fact, I was I was surprised I was I was, I was like, how did me and Harrison not cover this one?
3: Harry, I'm I am wondering if Harrison would have been an Otto Skorzeny fan because, like, he is like he is the Nazi James Bond, but he's also very. Dashing and attractive, I think he appeals maybe a bit more to the girls.
2: But would you say what Harrison would have been jealous of his good looks, or would Harrison yeah. have been attracted to him?
3: I think I, do, I think Harrison would be like, oh, he he didn't do half the things he said he did.
2: Well, you know, he called his fleshlight Otto.
3: Did he know one yes. of them? One of the many. They were all named after the top <laughs> SS guys.
2: <laughs> yeah, there was Otto. There's Goebbels.
3: Rudolf, <laughs> Heydrich. Anyway, Hitler. before we get
2: into uh, the story of Hitler's James Bond, let's have a heart-to-heart chat about the sick and wrong patron. Okay. Your people. If you're a fan of this show and you listen to us every week, all we ask is you to to throw us a couple bucks to keep the show going. You know, we enjoy we enjoy doing this. We have fun doing it. Um, well, I know Kate does. But it's not, you know, it's not free. It isn't. It actually costs a lot of money, I mean, uh, to, to keep the show running. And the Patreon money is what covers the cost of maintaining the podcast, as well as helping us plan for the future of this show. And we do have big plans, but we need your help to make it happen. So we're not asking just for a donation. We're asking you just to subscribe, sign up for the Patreon, and get something in return. So for 5 bucks a month, you get access to the Sick and Wrong Second Show, do a whole extra show on the Patreon, and I got to say, it's a bit more randy than the main show.
1: It is. This
2: week is a week you don't want to miss because I go into all the details about my uh, weekend in SF for Ozzy's birthday. Uh, my friend Captain Carl was there, and he told me this hilarious story about this nightmare LA podcast couple who got married this past weekend in LA, and the event planner is one of his wife's best friends and a colleague of my sister. So apparently, they were just talking all this shit about the, the event planner and my sister's friend and, uh, Captain Carl's wife on their Patreon. So it was really funny and they found it's out, not
3: us. Hint. well, they
2: found out before the wedding. No, no, it's a terrible podcast. When we talk about it, we go into detail on the, on the Patreon. Also, um, my brother's D's impression
3: friend. of Leslie Chow. I'm sorry, you're, you're glossing over that, but you just don't want to miss Dee's impression of this Asian cab driver, which has been, which made me cry with laughter.
2: Well, it was a, it was very, it was a very funny 15 minute ride. Um, also, I got a hilarious story about my brother's friend Brandon, who uh, jacks oh, off on back. Zoom all day. Well, he has a new hobby now. Well, I would say a new vocation now. Um, I go into that on the uh, second show. Only five bucks a month. And you can you can support your favorite podcasters on the Patreon. Uh, also, for a few dollars more, you get access to Sick and Wrong Overkill, which is our bonus minisode, um, and the Sick and Wrong Archives, uh, which covers the first ten years of uh, Sick and Wrong, the the Wackley and Harrison years, on a uh, SoundCloud play- playlist available on the Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Sick and Wrong. Uh, sign up today we do appreciate it so let me play this uh, Patreon promo and then uh yeah let's chat about the most dangerous man in europe otto scorzani do you need more sick and wrong in your life do you need one more news story to make you feel normal are three phone calls barely enough to feed the raging beast of desire Well, then it's time for you to get the help you need and become a Sick and Wrong patron. Sign up at patreon.com slash sickandwrong and you'll have access to exclusive Patreon-only content such as news stories, extra phone calls, and much, much more. Become a patron today and help us make a better Sick and Wrong for tomorrow. That's patreon.com slash sickandwrong.
3: You ready for this day? We're going to get into it. We're going to talk about sexy Scarface Otto Skorzeny. Oscar Zaney, I'm probably going to say it both ways. He's a legendary SS commander of World War II. And he's going to gain fame and fortune with Hitler for his dashing rescue of Mussolini from imprisonment in 1943. And his life reads like the blueprint for a James Bond novel. A very Nazi James Bond novel.
2: Yeah, if like Ian Fleming was German...
3: This would
2: be the
3: novel be he would Otto. write. Yep. Otto Skorzeny, he was born in Vienna, Austria, on the 12th of June, 1908. Yes, he's a Gemini, and he really is a Gemini because they're jammy, likable gits. He was born into a middle-class family that, like a lot of European families, they faced a lot of shite and hardship during the First World War. In his memoir, and we all know what I say about men who keep memoirs, He said of his school years, I recall that I found realistic subjects like mathematics, geometry, physics and chemistry quite easy, while I had to struggle with the foreign languages, French and English.
2: In his teens, uh, Scorzani once complained to his father about the austere lifestyle that the family was enduring. They were very middle class. Um, And his father replied, there is no harm in doing without things. It might even be good for you not to get used to a soft life.
3: Is that you doing your impression of your Russian grandfather?
2: German. It's his German father. But uh, I imagine my grandfather... Well, well, you know, the rabbi said the same thing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Don't put raisins in the biscuits, David. His uh, father and brothers are all engineers... And so he's going to be one as well. He enrolled in the Technical University of Vienna in 1926, and it was here that he was going to get his very sexy facial scars, which are a huge thing, and they're called schmisse. You
2: know what's funny about that is because uh, it's German for smite or hit, Ooh, schmisse.
3: That makes it even hit, that makes yeah. it even sexier.
2: So it's, it's yeah, it kind of it's kind of a cool word.
3: Dueling scars, they were brought on by bouts of fencing. They're seen as badges of honor amongst the very upper crust of Austrians and Germans at the time. And it wasn't like modern day fencing either. It was with specially developed swords. And the jewels were kind of a ritual known as Menserin. And they would have like protective padding and an eye guard, not much else. But usually the jewels would like spring up spontaneously, in which case there's going to be no protective gear. So... Think of it like the original Fight Club, where the ultimate goal was to appear as frightening and as, tim- and as intimidating as possible. Something that actually is going to come very naturally to Otto because he's six foot five and he weighs fifteen stone, or that's two hundred and twenty pounds for the non-metric crew. He's like a bear. He's huge. Big guy. When they were struck, they're going to wear their scars with pride, and they're actually going to often bother the womb, uh, womb, <laughs> wound. Instead of stitching it closed, they would pack it with horsehair so the wound wouldn't heal quickly and the scar would be like wider and more discolored, like nearly keloidy. They're into it.
2: It's like a badge of honor. Even
3: though, yeah, even though Menserin was a traditional German frat boy occupation, it was banned during Nazi rule. But there are several members with Schmiss's scars, including Ernst Romm, who was once besties with Hitler. He's later executed by the SS once Hitler had a falling out with him over Rom's failure to give back sticker swapsies that he had promised him. I promise you, know, you. That's really why.
2: It's odd that they call it a schmiss when it was actually a hit.
3: Um, what is it? He hit me, and it felt like a kiss.
2: <clears throat> yeah, it wasn't a schmiss at all. It was definitely a hit. It left a scar.
3: Oh, another case of schmiss or miss. <laughs> As an aside, and I'm not just saying this because uh, Ernst was gay, he was, he was a very out there homosexual, uh, but he's nowhere near as sexy or as dashing as Scarzani. I'm going to talk a lot about how sexy Scarzani is. You're all going to have to get over it. During his uni years, he wasn't necessarily political, he did go to a few rallies that were kind of in favor of the unification of Germany, and he was even a bit gutted when a student organization that was about the German home guard became overly political. In 1931, he graduated, and he was a certified engineer, and he soon found work as a manager of a small building business, and here the story would end for 99.9% of people, but Otto is not like normal people. In the summer of 32, he went to hear Nazi party leader and overall rap boy Joseph Goebbels speak at the Engelmann Arena in Vienna. And the speech moved him to join the Nazi party as member number 1.081.671. So he's like way far back. When you think that Hitler was, Hitler was like member number like 590, something like that. He's really far back.
2: Yeah, he's like, he's, he's way down there.
3: He still isn't utterly, uh, entirely convinced by the Nazis either. And he really didn't do much within the party for the rest of the year. And so his membership, it lapsed in 1933, which was handy as now the Nazi party was banned by Austria. But by then, he's more focused on pussy than playing with the boys. So we did, did, did
2: Nazis man. get pussy? I thought they did back then.
3: Some of the Nazis did, but I mean, he was like, I could either go and hang out with all these boys in like brown shirts, or I can go to like beer halls and chase some skirts.
1: Yeah, He's I, choosing I, I
3: choose the the He would marry three times and all. And in 1934, he married Margareta Gretel Schreiber. And he claims that they went on honeymoon to the Abusi region of Italy, which is near Gran Sasso. And we will be calling back to this later. So stick that in your Nazi pocket. In his book, Scorzen, he does mention that they get divorced in a few years. And she actually died at the grand old age of 101 on the 12th of November, 2015. Wow. So she's got some fucking memories. Germany's going to annex Austria in 1935, and he joined the German Gymnastics Association, which made me laugh at first, but then I fell into a wormhole, (laughs) like, reading about this. We also talk about you being a gymnastics star on the Patreon this week.
2: I I was really good at gymnastics. I wasn't officially on a—our school didn't have a gymnastics team, but during gym class, we would do gymnastics, like a little, you know, like a three-week— seminar or something uh on gymnastics and that was actually really good i was i'm uh, built for gymnastics
3: it's crazy i never knew that uh so the german gymnastics association by the time that otto is joining is actually a paramilitary organization and in the words of velvis i did get caught in a trap researching this because yes it is gymnastics Gymnastics is actually at the heart of the Nazi party, and I never really knew this. uh, Despite you know, I love World War Two and I love World War Two history, but that's why I love World War Two because I just don't think you can ever know it all.
2: So many layers. The subject is
3: huge. I didn't know that
2: uh, that the Germans were so into gymnastics either.
3: I mean, I've obviously seen it at the rallies, but I didn't realize how much it meant to them. If that makes sense. What
2: they did gymnastics at the rallies? Was there? Yeah, it was like a big theme, and they would like. come
3: out and show off their prowess. It's kind of like North Korea, you know, they would come out and show Hitler, like, look at us, look what we can do.
2: I had no idea.
3: Over the course of the 19th century, the German Gymnastics Association movement, it's gained huge strength, and it was actually part of the unification of Germany in 1871. Originally, it was started as a way to train young Germans to fight the French occupation and to create a new form of national discipline. There are videos of thousands. And I mean thousands of men in white vests and shorts demonstrating their agility in front of Hitler at sporting events, which isn't as sexy as it sounds.
2: Do you think they were doing Jim Carter?
3: What's Jim Carter? It sounds like a Pokemon
2: thing. Well, you've never seen the movie Jim Carter. No. It's this, it's a great movie that came out in the 80s, and people that know what I'm talking about are probably laughing right now, or at least smiling. Um, it was this amazing, like, martial arts movie in the 80s where the guy was a gymnast, but he, like, did gymnastics karate. So he, oh he would, like, do somersaults, but then karate chop people. kata. It's deadly. I
3: want to – I'm going to see that. Maybe we can make that a, a movie club.
2: That's, oh, my God. Because amazing. I love cotta. It's a great movie.
3: Okay. I'm going to watch it. That's
2: so what got me into gymnastics.
3: <laughs> was it really or was it just at the same time?
2: No, it was a little bit poor. It was an eighties movie. I remember watching it as a kid being like, That's cool, man. I'd love to learn master that gym that jim kata.
3: <laughs> and you did.
2: I think it's more effective than jujitsu.
3: Emphasis on the Jew <laughs> <laughs> So this movement, known as Turnen, it eventually evolved into the German Athletic Association or the Turnenbund, and their insignia was an important part of the SA and the Nazi Party. So the, it's the more you know. Gymnastics played a huge part in starting the Nazi Party.
2: So the SA was the faction of the Nazis that wore brown shirts, and they were known yeah. as the Storm Detachment or Sturmdeleg. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong.
3: Sturmabelong. <laughs> uh, the SA was
2: initially called the Gymnastic and Sports Division yeah. to elude authorities as to what they you know, were really doing, which was a paramilitary wing of a political party. And yeah. gymnastics wasn't just enshrined in the name of a key Nazi institution, but it would also go on to be an important sport in like, Nazi sporting culture. So gymnastics really can trace its roots back to like, ancient Greece, but modern gymnastics originated in 19th century Germany. So it was yeah, kind of an official sport. Yeah, neither time. I. It was the official sport yeah. of uh, Germany. And the Nazis emphasized gymnastics both in the form of encouraging participation as well as promoting gymnastics and propaganda. Gymnastics was seen as one of the purest forms of Aryan sport. So if you look, at, if you, uh, look through records, during the Holocaust, a lot of uh, Jewish gymnasts were, were sent to their deaths. And the main reason, even I'm, I'm talking like Olympic level Jewish mm-hmm. gymnasts were sent to their death because they were trying to to purify the sport of gymnastics because it had, you know, the ancient Aryan roots.
3: Oh, those Nazis, what were they like? <laughs> it was through this paramilitary group that Otto got his first taste of leadership, and he led a small group of the German Gymnastics Association to protect President Wilhelm Miklas of Austria, and this was on the eve of the annexation. Austrian Nazi party leader Arthur Zeiss-Inkart, he also placed some Nazi men under Otto's control, and he made sure that the president was safe from any violent uprisings for several days. Now under German control, instead of just joining the conscription, maybe the taste of power like kind of juiced him up a little bit, he goose-stepped to the German air force, uh, the Luftwaffe to enlist straight away. He was into it.
2: But unfortunately they rejected him because uh, he was too tall. At six foot he four, or, yeah, he was too tall, and he was a bit too old. He was uh, at thirty-one in nineteen thirty-nine. I guess thirty-one years old was a little too old for aircrew training, so instead, he ended up joining the SS and uh, became an officer cadet in the Leibstandarte, which was Hitler's bodyguard regiment.
3: But before he could, he found out that he was going to be in the the bodyguard regiment, he went on holiday at Lake Worth in Austria. And then the Second World War broke out across Europe on September the 1st, 1939. So he returns to Vienna and he's assigned to the Truss Barracks to be trained as a military engineer. But he soon learned that there was a lack of instructors. And then so he's going to be sent to the front lines in Poland. No one wants to go there. So he's edging his bets. He's obviously not wanting to be sent to the front. So he asked to be transferred to flight service. But with some Nazi luck, they scrounged up some instructors in the nick of time and he quickly finished his engineering training, although he's never going to become like a fully fledged pilot.
2: He knew how to fly, though. That's the thing. He just wasn't he in the officially in the Air Force. Too tall.
3: No. After this, he's, got, he's promoted to Waffen-SS as the officer candidate in the Signal Replacement Regiment. His sign up number being two five nine nine seven nine. This division was under the watchful eye of super Nazi and very nearly Quentin Tarantino character Karl Rudolf uh, Gerd von Rundstedt. He or Karl also sports a cute little Hitler Nazi tash, and there's a very very famous picture of him inside the Louvre in the shadow of the Venus de Milo. Rudolf. If this was a James Bond film, Rudolf is always in the background throughout this whole story. I mean, he like Hitler kind of dismissed him at the end of the war. He had over 50 years uh, military training. So he's kind of like Otto's M. You know, he's there in the background with gadgets. Let's is there a Q? Like that. Q, sorry, M. Q. He's well, Q. M's,
2: M's the guy. M's like James Bond's boss. He's yeah, sorry, shots. he's Q, like- The
3: the, uh, the gadget guy.
2: Oh, Q is the gadget guy. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so Rudolph was giving him all the the, the, the cool like spyware, like all the uh, the uh, he's handing pen, him a lot of lasers and all that stuff. Oh, cool.
3: Yeah. Unlike a Bond movie, though, the action was slow to start, and Skorzeny was frustrated. A little action was all that he needs, and he would spend the next year using his connections to bounce around regiments and divisions, complaining that his military career was uh, characterized as "we were busily chasing the war." being a bit sarcastic there. Even during the invasion of the Soviet Union, when he was sent to the front, he still didn't really see any direct combat, as he was just supervising the mechanics that worked around the clock to keep the war vehicles in order.
2: You know, initially, though, I guess during his period there um, with the Soviet Union, he was ordered to capture the sluices of the Moscow-Volga Canal, because Hitler had this grand plan to turn moscow into a huge artificial lake by opening these dams <laughs> oh hitler yeah never ended up happening and the mission was canceled as german fa- uh, forces failed to capture uh, moscow
3: <laughs> it was kind of because of that though that he was awarded his iron cross uh because he rescued a vehicle under enemy fire at the Yelna bridgehead even though things were going really well for him he's progressing up the ranks he's winning medals he's seeing warfare like he craved. It all came crashing down when in the December of 41, he became ill with stomach colic. He had gallstones. And this had been brought on because he had actually been injured by shrapnel from Russian artillery rockets. He'd refused to be evacuated. He had continued to fight. Actually, some of the shrapnel went into his skull, into his yeah. head, and he would get, like, migraines for the rest of his life.
2: Yeah, the, shrap- like the shrapnel actually like pierced his skull. He was seriously like said, injured.
3: He's like a bear. It's not going to stop him. Yeah. He carried on. He's sent to Berlin for bed rest and boredom, and he had many months to sit, recover, read, and meet up with other Waffen SS pals and talk about what he had been reading. And he wasn't reading old issues of Playboy magazine, James Ellroy novels or trashy true crime. He was reading anything he could get his hands on about commando warfare and espionage techniques. And he would share his ideas with this about anyone who was bored enough to listen to a junior technical officer's ideas about commando warfare. It took until about 1942 for the bigwigs in the German military to think that they should actually establish some type of unconventional warfare behind enemy lines. Obviously, the Nazis were huge into like guerrilla warfare because at the end of the war, that's where the werewolves and the Nazi party step in. But at this point in time, Otto's chatter paid off. His ideas of establishing small commando units that would fight behind enemy lines as essentially James Bond spies sent him to Waffen-SS HQ, where he was promoted to captain of the new SS special unit, Freidenfall.
2: Yeah, I'm surprised they weren't doing that already. But I'm he,
3: surprised too. Yeah,
2: he's the one that was like, I think we should make elite commando units. You know, like he was the one that like basically made german spies
3: i think like the difference between now and then though in warfare is like there was some kind of honor back then whereas now i mean like the the laws of war are so fucking murky like what is a crime in war do you know what i mean wearing an enemy's uniform is it really a crime it's very difficult yeah This unit is going to be the starting point for other partisan groups that would spring up during forty-four and forty-five, like I mentioned, the werewolves, and it launched Skorzeny into infamy. He began training his specially selected SS groups in espionage, instructing them to shoot as little as possible, with one of his mottos being that he would run ahead of his own men so he would never fire his gun. And by the July of forty-three, him and his men are ready for battle. On July the 26th, he received a call to... To arms on the blower from Hitler himself. Hitler, who had heard word of Scorzeni's daredevil antics from Himmler, needed him to rescue Mussolini, who had recently been ousted in Italy and imprisoned. And he needed to be rescued. There's only one man for this job.
2: <laughs> yeah, the uh, Italian government ended up toppling Benito Mussolini and they had him arrested. And Hitler was Pissed off. Hitler was a big fan of Mussolini. Like they were both. Oh my God,
3: he loved him.
2: Yeah, they were chummy chums. And so he vowed to rescue him and he initiated an operation he called Eich, which is Operation Oak. Nice.
3: Eich is nice. This is going to be the first time that Otto and Hitler are going to meet up. As an aside, there is absolutely no doubt that Hitler would have hung Major Dong for Otto. I mean, Otto is very sexy, he's hopingly huge, he's got his impressive schmischer, he's whip-smart, and he's very dashing. He's everything Hitler would have wanted.
2: What, are you saying Hitler is bi?
3: I think Hitler would have been bi for Otto.
2: Oh, okay. So he's an opportunist.
3: I mean, come on. I mean, when you think about Nazi party and warfare in general, it is pretty much a boys' club. He's a little bit gay. I'm putting it out there. War is gay. (laughs)
2: I think the Nazis definitely were a little bit gay. But all I think they were are, also kind of like...
3: men's are gay.
2: Yeah, but I think the Nazis also were like trisexual in a sense. They'd try anything. It's like, why not?
3: Yeah, I kind of like that about the Nazis. You want to shag around on your wife and have 20 wives? You do that. Yeah. You go ahead, do that. No one cares. You can be gay, Ernst uh, Throm. It's fine. We'll shoot you for it later. But for now, it's fine.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, superficially... You know, they had to, like, pretend that they were, you know, in regular, like, heteronormative relationships. But I think behind closed doors, they were rather kinky, those Nazis.
3: They were. Otto commented later that he's actually surprised by Hitler's Austrian accent. Obviously, Otto's Austrian, too. And he's also surprised by how warmly Hitler felt towards Mussolini. After informing the boss that he had indeed knowledge of the topography of Italy because he had been there nine years earlier on honeymoon... He was chosen because of this, but he was also chosen because he's Austrian. And after the First World War, Italy and Austria hated each other. They were not besties at all. Otto gets to work at once. He mainly gathered intelligence and he sent his secret agent, Mans into the field. He's an amateur, so his intelligence gathering wasn't that good. So when he arrived in Italy on July the 28th, he actually nearly launched a rescue gathering mission. A a totally different place before he learned quickly that no, he wasn't being held. uh, He was being held somewhere else at the Villa Weber at La Maddalena. But by the time he had learned this, Mussolini had again been moved to Lake uh, Brassiano, which is northwest of Rome. Whilst he was trying to clandestine conduct an aerial reconnaissance mission in a 111 aircraft over Lake Bracciano British fighters actually shot him down. He crash-landed, he survived, and he's got three broken ribs. So the entire time that he's doing this mission, he's just got three broken ribs. Again, he's like a bear. That does not stop.
2: But it was very challenging, though. That's the thing. Like, the Italian um, intelligence kept moving... Mussolini around like he was constantly moving from hotel hotel on a train and a car, so it was very challenging for Scorzani to actually find him. Um, and each location was secret, so it was almost like a game of uh, cat and mouse here. But after weeks of searching, Scorzani finally tracked him down to the Campo Imperatore Hotel, which was sixty five hundred se- uh, uh, feet above sea level on the Gran Sasso Mountain in the Abruzzo region of uh, of Italy. So the hotel was only accessible by cable car. So on September 12th, 1943, Skorzeny hatched a plan, a very daring, and this is straight out of James Bond, a very yeah. daring airborne raid on the hotel by gliders.
3: I wonder if this hotel's still there. I didn't think to look it up. But if it is, we're going to put this on our Nazi tour and we'll go and spend a couple of nights at this hotel.
2: Yeah, definitely. I'd like there. to check that out.
3: Because... Hitler would have spanked him and he would have been publicly humiliated if he gave up on the mission. He's he's going to soldier on with his broken ribs and with all the difficulties presented in front of him. And he landed at Campo in Portorio at Grand Sasso with a glider-borne assault force. He had a total of 108 troops, of which 81 paratroopers in nine gliders, 25 of them being Scorsese's Scorsese men. I am going to point out here because I also had to Google it. When you think of gliders, I just think of like the shitty gliders, you know what I mean? Like, um like nearly a hang glider is what I was thinking they were on.
2: Now, I kind of think of like those really kind of s- small, thin planes. And then, the but they're wings. not. They're, like,
3: these are planes that you can put a jeep on a glider.
2: Oh, really? They're I big. didn't realize they were that big. Oh, okay.
3: Yeah. So they can carry like, you know, but they're, they're much smaller and quieter. And then, I can't remember what type of material they were made for, but like, you know, basically, if somebody shoots at it, you're all dead type of deal. Mm. That's what they're in. Scorzani's glider it's initially the second in the row of them, but the original first pli- pilot, he had difficulties during flight, so he had to b- abandon being in lead. So now Scorzani was leading the night Riders. So they don't have a map. They don't even have a light, and it's you know, obviously dark out. So his plan, he cut a small hole in the bottom of his glider to kind of like look out and check out the landscape below him and because of his intel and his re- research and also mainly based on his memory of the flight path from his aerial photographs that he had taken he managed to relay information to the glider pilots that got them all to their desired destination that's a 100 percent james bond once on the ground Otto led a charge towards the building because he saw Mussolini watching him from a second floor window. <laughs> I wonder Watching that, the gliders.
2: I wonder if someone tipped off Mussolini or if Mussolini's like, my buddy Hitler, there we he go. <laughs> Here he
3: comes. <laughs> the Nazis managed to snake their way in without firing a single shot and they rescued Il Duce, but it could have gone horribly wrong at this point. Again, because of Otto. But this is also... So what's going to print his myth? The tiny two-seater plane that was to fly Mussolini back to safety wasn't built for the bear Corzini. But he jams himself in the cargo bay behind Mussolini, saying that he'd rather be brought back as a corpse than risk Il Duce getting captured again. The pilot, Captain Gerlach, he had doubts as to if the plane would even make flight with this extra weight on board of it. They had a short, rocky runway, and the actual drop-off the runway was into a total dark abyss at the end of it. With all three of them on board, Captain Gerlach, he told the paratroopers to basically hold the plane in place whilst he just put his foot to the floor and he's flooring the engine. The plane pitched down into the abyss, after they'd like with now had a broken engine because they had gone down the rocky runway and the skilled pilot he actually managed to level it out keeping very like low to the valley below keeping the aircraft at like kind of treetop level so he could evade any enemy fighters in the night sky they landed at a german controlled airbase near rome and they both went to vienna to meet with hitler the next day otto ...printed his own myth this way. He went to meet Hitler with his prize turkey, and he was met with and accolades. He was gifted the Knight's Cross. Hitler praised him, saying, You have performed a military feat, which has become part of history, and you have given me back my friend, Mussolini. Hitler! promoted him as extra thanks Mussolini in fact gave him a watch with a personal inscription that he wore up until his death and now there's video footage of him when he's imprisoned later on Otto and he's taking off this watch and he's showing American military and uh I think the watch still existed it is in a museum somewhere and the Nazis now have a new idol amongst their ranks
2: did he have to like hide the watch like in a secret area on his body are you just... talking
3: about christopher walken and <laughs> <Fiction>. <laughs>
2: <laughs> i wonder what happened to that watch um yeah daring mission that's the thing i wonder how many nazis would have been able to pull that off i also wonder if uh el duche had to change his pants when they got to uh to germany or vienna <laughs> probably i'm sure a lot of them did so the next <laughs> ambitious mission given to uh our uh, the fearless Otto here was a mission that actually never happened. Operation Long Jump. That's one thing I love about the Nazis um, is, well, Hitler, I guess. He was very ambitious. Like Hitler had all these oh, plans, yeah. these grandiose plans, not very well thought through. I think that's why he wasn't like the, the greatest military leader, but he was very creative. You got to admit that. And, oh, and, yeah, totally. and ambitious. So Operation yeah, Long Jump was the codename given to a plot to assassinate the big three.
1: <laughs> Joseph <laughs> Stalin,
2: Winston Churchill, and Franklin Roosevelt at the 1943 Tehran Conference. So Hitler had heard that all three of these men, these leaders, were going to be there, and he hatched a plan with Otto to, uh, well, Otto and Ernst Kaltenbrunner, um, to, uh, yeah, to assassinate the big three. I mean, that would have been a trifecta. A mi-
3: Imagine if they'd have got them. It's like the Holy Grail, isn't
2: it? They probably I would have won the war. I think it would they have changed the, the of- it changed the outcome of the war for sure. Yeah. Um, now, knowledge of the whole scheme was presented to the Western Allies by uh, Stalin's NKVD, Stalin's secret police, at the Tehran Conference. The Soviets claimed that they learned about its existence from counter-espionage activities against German intelligence. Like they had met some German agents in a bar, got really drunk, and the agents um, pretty much let them know, like, uh, the time and place in the meeting <laughs> and uh, exactly where it was going to happen. So, according to the NKVD, the assassination plot was completely foiled after they identified the German spies in Iran, which forced Skorzeny to completely call off the mission. So, Loose
3: lips sink ships. Exactly.
2: Spies. Now, following Tehran, the story was treated with incredulity by the British and Americans who were like... That's Soviet propaganda. That never happened. And Scorzani supported this view in his memoir, saying that no such operation ever existed. Hitler never would have ordered that.
3: Yeah, I bet he did. He just didn't want to say that he failed a mission.
2: Well, I mean, I don't know. It, it does sound like the Russians are like bragging a bit, little bit about, Stalin's bragging a little bit about NKVD, the effectiveness of his uh, secret police. And then they, you know, the Americans were like, oh, we never would have let, you know, put our our leaders in such peril.
3: Well, we are going to talk about Stalin a little here now, because his next actual mission would be in the May of 44 to help capture and kill the partisan leader and Stalin's public enemy, number one, Joseph Tito. Uh, Tito, he was slippery, like a greased up deaf kid. Uh, managed to escape and this led to serious casualties in uh, Otto's battalion. As an aside, Tito's pretty skilled at escaping death many, 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 many times. The famous quote in a letter that he sent direct to the big murdering and erotica writing Stalling himself said, Stop sending people to kill me. Uh, We've already captured five of them. One of them with a bomb and another with a rifle. If you don't stop sending killers, I'm going to send one to Moscow and I won't have to send another. Stalin now, stopped after that, by the
2: way. Now, Tito was leader of Yugoslavia at the time.
3: Um, also, I'm putting this on. A lot of people, a hero, worship Tito, but he was also a cunt. Killed a lot of people.
2: Yeah, but he makes great vodka.
3: Hey! Oh, I do, I
2: enjoy it. I actually have a bottle right now.
3: I actually don't mind Tito's vodka. Is that named after Tito?
2: I don't know. <laughs> it <must laughs> Maybe be. it's my I sister's think. favorite vodka. Drank a lot of Tito's in San Francisco.
3: Otto extended his unit. He also gained control over German special units, including the Navy's underwater sabotage divers, midget submarine units, very cute, and also an elite squad of the Air Force's suicide ground attack units called the Leonidas Squadron, which is exactly like the Japanese kamikaze and it's made up of volunteer suicide pilots.
2: You know, I didn't really know much about the Leonidas Squadron. I, I didn't even know that uh, the Germans. I, you know, I'd read something about it, but I didn't realize that the Germans had yeah. their own Kamikaze division. But the establishment of the suicide squad here was originally proposed by Otto Skorzeny and another man named Hajul Hermann. Um, over seventy volunteers, mostly young recruits, came forward. Um, I wonder if they're all Hitler Youth. Uh, they Yum were required done, to sign. They were required to sign a declaration which said. I hereby voluntarily apply to be enrolled in the suicide group as part of a human glider bomb. I fully understand that employment in this capacity will entail my own death. Could you imagine signing that for your country?
3: Never. No, <laughs> but like also I like I would never go to war ever. No, I would, like, would fuck I. this.
2: Now during the uh, the final battle, the battle for Berlin, uh, the Luftwaffe flew self sacrifice missions. I can't even say this in German. Uh, but they flew these missions against Soviet held bridges over the Oder River. And the Luftwaffe claimed that the suicide squad destroyed 17 bridges. However, military historian Anthony Beevor uh, wrote about the incident. He claimed that this is complete hyperbole overly exaggerated that the only bridge that they managed to destroy was that was a railway bridge at a Kustrin, um which was definitely destroyed but beaver commented that uh, 35 pilots and aircraft was a high price to pay for just one the destruction of one bridge
3: oh those nazis they're kind of bumbling i like them
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean i just love how they like you know kind of use poetic license when they talk about their victories
3: Oh, of course they do. It's part. Of, they print their myth, man. They print their myth. On July the twentieth, forty-four, he was on a train heading out of Berlin when one of the many assassination attempts on Hitler took place. He returns quick sharp back to Germany to uh, to kind of calm down the coup d'etat. He wormed out some of the rebels. He actually stopped the execution of more of them, and he took complete control. Uh, Commander of the commando everything for 36 hours and under his leadership any words of a coup were kind of quickly dropped this you know otto now only grew in favor and his stature in hitler's eyes during this time in october another coup raised its head when he went to budapest and he's going to try and kidnap the son of the hungarian regent admiral harvey to show to slow the path of the soviet forces they kidnapped his son they sent him by plane to germany uh, but they failed to stop Harvey from negotiation, negotiating surrender to Russia. So what followed next? Otto described as an action-packed gunfight. As with a few words and lots of gunpowder spilled, Skorzeny took control of the citadel, and he replaced Harvey with a new pro-Germany prime minister. Hitler again awarded him with more accolades, more honours. He gave him a new mission. As part of the Germans at Adrien's Offensive during Christmas week in 44, a.k.a. my my favorite named one, the (laughs) Battle of the Bulge. Come on.
2: That that is a great name for a battle.
3: (laughs) War is gay when you're naming it the Battle of the Bulge. It's kind of like the tiny penis contests in BC.
2: Well, do you think Hitler battled his bulge every time he was talking to Otto? Uh,
3: Yeah, wouldn't you? (laughs) This was what led to 2,000 English-speaking Germans dressed in American uniforms behind Allied lines to kind of create havoc and mayhem. They would also use captured Allied jeeps, and they repainted their Panther tanks, and they modified them to make them more look like Allied vehicles. This is going to be Skorzenny's Trojan horse.
2: Classic subterfuge here.
3: Right, so Otto, he didn't want to send out many of his troops in Allied uniforms because it is a bit iffy. But Hitler calmed his nerves. He's saying that American troops had been doing it, so you know why can't we? A lot of his soldiers met their deaths during this, as wearing an American uniform for acts of such espionage was a punishable crime, met with death. And there's lots of footage of field justice and punishment being carried out against Skorzeny's men. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. I. Fell down a wormhole watching it just loads of nazis being shot when captured the men said their mission had been to reach paris and assassinate the allied commander general eisenhower but this was a ruse they did go to their death saying that scars was their commander and the allies took this as a personal threat towards eisenhower's life as skazen so hugely famous at this time
2: i mean everyone must have uh you know heard about this guy he's notorious
3: yeah Uh, he was. He was like one of the highest ranking ones. It's like how everyone had heard about Mengele. And yeah, he was going to come for you. Otto considered this operation a failure as many of his men died and he actually had to fight as a regular soldier. But in some ways Hitler's idea was successful. The phony American soldiers, it caused direct damage and anxiety to the Allied units. Traffic of their supplies, ranks, reinforcements, they're all slowed down as double Triple checks now had to be made at checkpoint after checkpoint where now not only did you have to show your Yankee passport, but you also had to answer American trivia questions such as, what do you tell your wife that has two black eyes?
2: That's what every soldier has to answer. (laughs) But no, it's true. Paranoia, like mass paranoia set in amongst the American forces because everyone was like, oh, there's German imposters in our ranks. So some Americans even fired on each other. And soon GIs were grueling each other on American popular culture to try to flush out the German agents, which would have been hilarious to watch that. I wish there were YouTube videos of that. Um, who played Beaver and Leave It to Beaver?
3: I was just thinking, so this is the 40s. It would have all just would been... The, um, yeah, I guess
2: Leave It to Beaver was 50s. Yeah, I wonder what would yeah, have Yeah, you couldn't even
3: be like, what's your favorite Elvis song? Tell me now. What is it? It would have been like old school country stars. I think what's it would your have been What's favorite like, Hank song?
2: Okay, Who was the Lone Ranger's Indian friend? (laughs) (laughs) And if they didn't know, bam. Uh, But many uh, American soldiers and even Allied generals were detained at checkpoints for answering questions wrong. So uh, who knows what they're asking each other? Um, For instance, there was a field marshal, Bernard Montgomery, who refused to show his ID And they shot out his car tires he was then dragged into a barn and restrained until they finally confirmed his identity and realized okay i guess he's a uh
3: a field marshal a a field
2: marshal here so sorry
3: (laughs) well they would have been in huge trouble it's very quentin tarantino this whole bit
2: yeah this is very inglorious bastards
3: as the german military might was dwindling because the war's coming to its final bitter end the need for commando units was shrinking really fast Otto, he's relieved back to commanding a regular unit on the Eastern Front, which luckily for him in some ways was bypassed by advancing enemy troops, so he saw little live action. But his final battle, he said, was a remarkable feat of arms. So near the medieval city of Schwedt on the Rida Oder, Himmler ordered Otto to protect the town from a Soviet invasion. Otto scrapes a division together, although it wasn't a commando unit, and his unit was short of firepower that had very little battle experience. But they actually held out for over a month, mainly because the fighters consisted of Norwegian, Danish, Dutch, Belgium, and French like personnel. They had a little sprinkling of Russian thrown in as well.
2: They're lucky there are no Americans there. It wouldn't have lasted a oh. month. <laughs>
3: On their way out of Schwedt, they were supposed to destroy the bridge, but the water was a bit cold that day, so nobody did it. Hashtag true story. (laughs) Hitler awarded him the Knight's Cross with oak leaves, and two days before he committed suicide in his bunker, he gave him his final orders to go to Bavaria to command whatever was left of the soldiers behind in the Alpine forest. He's meaning bring on the werewolves at this point. Here, he met up with other senior Nazi officers that were also on the run, and they're worried for their future, including the architect of the final solution, Adolf Eichmann.
2: Do you think Do you think like every time Otto completes a mission, at the end of the mission, when Hitler's, you know, has another operation that he's ready to tell him about, he like finds out where he is, and then beams into like some kind of video, you know, uh, uh, video software or whatever they used at the time. And there's Otto just in bed with some sexy German frau. And uh, yeah. you're know, in a compromising position. Hitler's like, oh, am I interrupting something? And Otto's like, oh, no, it's okay, Hitler. And then he just <laughs> sort of uh, just asks, like, what's going on? And then he's like, oh, you know, just go about your business and I'll get back to you later. We've got another operation to get to. And I then he just kind obviously. of floats off down, like, you know, the uh, the Danube River or something. <laughs>
3: This is exactly how I see the Otto Bond story. Exactly (laughs) like that. We all know at this point that no amount of 11th hour effort was going to be sufficient enough to overcome the Allies, and the last month of the war had changed Otto into a very unpleasant character. Whereas before he kind of coasted along with the war, printing his own myth, growing his ego, possibly hiding some Nazi loot here and there, now his behavior ranged from overbearing to brutal. One example is that the wives and the daughters of the Alpine Forest, they were thrown into, like, last-minute desperate preparations of munitions under the threat of death if they didn't cooperate by Scorzetti.
2: Ooh, he's getting harsh.
3: On May the 8th, he fled into the mountains with his fellow soldiers over high-ranking SS officers, hiding in a mountain chalet. So it, was, it wasn't like you were thinking, oh, yeah, he's hiding in a hut. He's in a fucking chalet.
2: Yeah. He's glamping.
3: He's glamping indeed. By mid-May, the most dangerous man in Europe had surrendered. But do not think that this Nazi will go gently into that good night because even after his short imprisonment in Salzburg, he remained at the center of the Nazi underground and the second part of his life, which includes working for Mossad, was about to begin.
2: Yeah, that's that's probably the most ironic but yet fascinating part of Otto Skorzeny's life this guy was a decorated Nazi soldier but then he ended up being in the employ of Israel's secret service seems a bit contradictory not for Otto
3: yeah He's going to be acquitted of war crimes basically because the Brits had been bouncing around in Ger- German uniforms on their missions as well. And also because of the va- it was like I was talking about before, the vague nature of like post-war war crimes itself. Like what is a crime during war? It's still like a real shady topic and, you know, people get away with it. He remained in prison after his acquittal. He helps the Americans set their military records straight in regards to, like, the rescue of Mussolini. You can watch the footage of that on YouTube. But he wouldn't sit still in prison for very long before he made his escape. On July the 27th, 1948, a jeep arrived at the detention camp carrying free, uniformed American military police that said that Skorzeny was needed in Nuremberg. And they swept him away, and he would not be seen again for over a year. Obviously, the men were students of Scorsexy, and they had been former SS men in disguise. So, James fucking
2: Bond. Yeah, this is very Bond.
3: Many high-profile SS men were brought to trial, but many others were able to flee by the very mythical Odessa. Uh, I, w- I can't say it in German, I'm not even going to. <laughs> the secret group of SS brothers that Skorzeny had established with the intent to smuggle war criminals out of Germany.
2: Yeah, that'd be, you know, that'd be an interesting topic for a future show, uh, the Odessa, like whether or not, you know, they actually existed. But, you know, Skorzeny claimed that the OSS had actually aided his escape in return for his services. Right. Um, And the OSS was the Office of Strategic Services, which was the intelligence agency of the United States prior to the CIA. So yeah. the OSS eventually became the CIA in 1947, and so Scorzini afterwards maintained that it was the U.S. authorities who had aided his escape and supplied the uniforms because they were they needed his service.
3: That would make sense. So I mean, Operation Paperclip.
2: Yeah, definitely. Like, I mean,
3: yeah. So he's protected by right-wing dictatorships that wanted war criminals, and they're going to create german colonies in parts of south america italy and in franco spain and it was in spain that um, otto escaped and he found freedom the german government sanctioned this and they granted him amnesty in 1952. in the countries where the ss members found shelter they would often find work under organizations named odessa and although otto had been linked to it time and time again any evidence proving that it was an international central network has never been found Despite the fact that after his death, um, Otto had left his, his entire archives for historians to research. They're still going through them now. I actually watched, there's a Netflix documentary, a Spanish one, about Otto Skorzeny and his time in Spain. And you see his, like, archives. They're still going through them to this day.
2: You know, Odessa's kind of like the uh, Nazis' version of the Underground Railroad.
3: Yeah. Like, it did exist. But it's, it's unknown to, like, how powerful it kind of was. But or it how established
2: too that's that's what I was that's what I'm curious to find out like how yeah you know how well organized Odessa actually was.
3: So he used the name Roald Steinbauer and he headed a company and he employed personal protection from Franco himself. And for years he travelled back and forth between Buenos Aires, Madrid, even Paris, where he kept close friendships with old friends such as Adolf Eichmann, Franz Strangel, he was the uh, Treblinka commandant, Commandant, uh, Joseph Mengele. But his real bestie was Klaus Barbie, the uh, Butcher of Lyon. And they actually weren't friends during the war, but then they became really good friends uh, when he was going on his many trips to South America. Yeah, I'm sure
2: Klaus had many admirable qualities.
3: So the hotel that Klaus Barbie had in uh, Lyon is still there, and we're going to go and stay in it because it is still a hotel. Oh,
2: it's still, wow, I didn't know. I thought it was like a historical, uh, you know, Location. I didn't realize it was safe. still like a fully functioning hotel. You can stay there.
3: You can still stay there. Yeah, oh, I yeah. was like, I've I've been to Leon once, and I kick myself now for like not going inside it. But I think I was really hungover that day. I had an excuse that day. I didn't go see it. In print, the Misspire style. It's been reported, although never proven, that he was on very friendly terms with the Argentinian President Juan Peron and his wife Evita. This has led to years of rumors and speculation that she was the first lady of the Nazis, aiding and abetting them for Nazi gold in return. But these rumors are easily quelled when you fact check the dates and you see that she actually died two years before (laughs) Otto even set foot on South American soil. Still forever right-wing, he actually founded a consulting group that acted as a front for recruiting and training mercenaries to fight for right-wing regimes and military from South Africa to Greece and Chile. Such was Skorzeny's power and reach in the underworld of big bad men at this point that it's been said that he actually trained Yasser Arafat, who has gone down in history books as the father of modern terrorism.
2: In addition to training the army... Um, Scorzani also trained Arab volunteers in commando tactics for possible use against British troops that were stationed at the Suez Canal at the time. And uh, several Palestinian refugees also received commando training, and Scorzani actually planned out their raids into Israel via the Gaza Strip in uh, 1953 and 1954. Still raids going on to this day in that location.
3: Otto is really like Ma. Uh, Mac in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia He's playing every side So he always comes out on top
2: Who's the epitome of opportunists Like that guy's just out for himself
3: Yeah even though he is a very Full-fledged Nazi and he will go to his Grave still being a Nazi And and he even declared that the Jews were subhuman He's like fuck it I will literally work for anyone I just will do anything That's like fucking evil for money
2: Yeah I think he just I think he worked for money He worshipped money
3: he did. And it could be the, these links to Middle East that we were just talking about that saw his next role as working for Mossad. So that's the Israeli Secret Service. It's fairly obvious why the Jewish state would employ a very dedicated Nazi like Skorzeny because they feared the rocket program of Egypt under the form of President Nasser Moore at the time.
2: Well, that's true because President Nasser, I mean, it was Egypt was at war with Israel and Egypt actually managed to attain you know, a, a group of Jewish scientists or German scientists, not Jewish, but yeah. German scientists that were teaching them, you know, how to make atomic um, you know, weapons. So former Mossad head, Iser Harel confirmed the story that former Nazis were recruited to provide intelligence on Arab countries. So it is confirmed that, uh, that, they, that Mossad, Israel, recruited Skorzeny.
3: This also wasn't the first time that Mossad had pardoned a high ranking Nazi Eva. In nineteen forty nine, they had recruited Nazi Wolfer Rauf, the man who invented the mobile gas fans, which killed thousands, and then that obviously evolved into the gas chamber. He agreed to sell information on his former employers and Israel was more than happy to pony up for the info.
2: Well, I think you just need to balance basically, you know, the value of yeah, pardoning this like person versus evils. the information that he has. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's the thing. I mean, it's like with the information that they, they gathered probably saved more lives.
3: Yeah. But Mossad had taken a gamble with uh, Otto. By the 60s, he was suspected in various crimes, such as the burning of synagogues on Kristallnacht, executing defecting German soldiers, and even experimenting with like makeshift poison guns on prisoners. War is hell, Skorzeny said hello. Although this is difficult to verify by this point, because East Germany propaganda was like flooding the market by the 60s.
2: Yeah, this is like full on Cold War at this point. But it is true, though. Mossad definitely took a gamble with, uh, with Scorzeny. But, you know, Jews are very sneaky people. You know, they, had, they, had their, they had their objectives.
3: Do you think they rolled the dreidel and asked the dreidel if they should <laughs> <Yeah>. do it? <laughs> it's
2: up to the dreidel. If we get a gimel, we're going to hire him.
3: Rafi uh, Aitan? I'm not going to say any Raffi-tan. of these. Uh, Rafi Aitan. He was the chief Mossad spy in Europe. He described Otto as a soldier of the first grade with huge balls and an even bigger dick. That's what he said, dude.
2: How did he know?
3: I mean, you just have to look at him.
2: No, but I mean, was he really wearing tight pants? Like you could see his hog? Or did he, like,
3: <laughs> did he double team
2: a chick? Like, I, I don't know. How would you know? Like, God, he has a huge cock. <laughs>
3: I may be misquoting him, but what's Rafi going to do? Come <laughs> wait, tell are
2: you, me. Wait, are you quoting your dream you had last night? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had huge balls.
3: And an even bigger dick. And another uh, member of Mossad remembered him as a very friendly and affable, not unlike being welcomed by a huge bear or engulfed by a huge St. Bernard dog. But that's a- the energy I get too from Otto.
2: Well, a huge St. Bernard dog with a massive cock.
3: <laughs> a huge cock just coming at you. They, uh, they're they actually going to entice him into Mossad by his spicy third wife, the Countess Ilse von Finkenstein, who is very attractive. Google her because she is. And she's very intelligent. And she was seen as many to be the new driving force behind Otto.
2: She's a very attractive name.
3: <laughs> Finkenstein. I love her name. They have an unusual marriage for the time. It was an open marriage. And it, because Ilsa traveled the world, she was invested in international tourism. She was in the biz. She would go to the Bahamas. She had actual ties to several French intelligence services. And she was known for her big extravagant parties that she would throw for very rich men on her various horse farms, probably turned into orgies. She can. She's got an orgy energy about her.
2: She must have had her own Mr. Hands.
3: <laughs> Do you think, why would you need a Mr. Hands when you've got horse dick Otto?
2: I've heard of these German orgies. It's, you know, anything can mm-hmm. happen. Put it that way. No holds
3: barred. is what we all know happens. i <laughs> too. To Germany. Apparently, she was seduced by an undercover Mossad agent after a weekend on the tiles in Dublin why they're in Ireland is that Otto had bought a Gothic-style home, Martin's Town House, near, I'm sorry, Irish people, I am going to say this wrong, Curra, Curra, in County Kildare in 1959, and he had applied to be a permanent resident. So as he was waiting for his application to be approved and denied, he made a very public visit to Dublin where he's welcomed by a number of prominent people. This is like one of the most famous Nazis in the world trying to live in the British Isles.
2: I don't think he was welcomed by everyone, though.
3: Not the locals. <laughs> he used to drive around in his white Mercedes, and uh, that's how like some of the people remembered him.
2: Uh, yeah, the locals weren't especially fond of him.
3: So he still lives in Spain, too. That's his main residence. And he needed a European address because he's continuing to engage in the shipment of arms to Arab countries, which is how he's making his fortune. Ultimately, this is the reason he's denied a life living on the British Isles. But it was through this, it was through Britain that he made his Mossad connections.
2: So what's interesting is because I was wondering, I was like, how can he travel so freely, this former Nazi? You know, I'm sure like... yeah. You know, Weisenthal and, uh, you know, other, um, you know, Israeli agents were after this guy. Uh, but like many former Nazis, Skorzani was declared, I'm gonna butcher this, Ent Nazi Zert, which means denazified in absentia in 1952 by a West German government arbitration board, which meant that he could now travel freely from Spain into other Western countries on a special Nansen passport is what they called it, for stateless persons. So he used this nonsense passport to go to you know from Ireland back to Spain to to Buenos Aires to Paris so, and yeah, yeah all over Paris. the world.
3: So Otto might have taken them up on the offer because he was a shady shit, but Mossad could actually offer him a life without fear. Now he would be like, no one's going to come after me for his Nazi past. Although the great Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal uh, refused to take Scarsany off his hit list of Nazis. But Mossad forged a letter from Simon, gave it to Otto, and like through that, he could sleep better at night. So Mossad are also up to shady shit, too.
2: Very sneaky people.
3: Very sneaky. You just can't, they will even turn against each other. You just can't trust them. In turn, he's going to connect Mossad to the um, MI6, to the Egyptian rocket campaign, possibly, possibly helping save more lives than he helped take. Possibly. Yeah, exactly. And I think
2: that's where Mossad is, you know, weighing his usefulness. So yeah. I'd read that uh, a Mossad team had actually started to develop a plan to kill Skorzeny. So they were actually planning to kill him. But uh, Chief at the time, Isar Harel, uh, decided to recruit him instead. Because a man on the inside would greatly enhance their ability to target Nazis who are providing military assistance to Egypt. So he is valuable, extremely valuable so i think they waged like well he was responsible for the death of many jews but he could also save the lives of many jews so he allegedly was recruited and conducted operations from Mossad from 1964 um working with their top spies rafi Itan and avraham ahituv so i mean he was you know definitely active in Mossad for a few years
3: He would continue his relationship working for Mossad until the day he would die. And he was very willing at doing it as well. He mailed out at least one letter bomb for his Jewish bosses, which worked. It killed five Egyptian scientists when they opened it. And he pulled the trigger on a deceitful German scientist uh, called Heinz Krug. The details of his murder committed by Otto, as ordered by Mossad, only actually came to light in 2016 when they're going through his archives.
2: Yeah, I mean, he probably, I mean, he, and he did, you know, write his whole memoirs, right?
3: Yeah, um, but he doesn't, like, obviously, like, say, and then I went and killed this guard. This has, like, come well, out, like, really recently. There'll be more that will come out about Skorzeny in the next years, definitely.
2: Well, Massant's gamble definitely worked, because the intimidation that they had with, uh, you know, by having Otto on their side, um Caused all the German scientists to leave uh, Egypt by the end of 1963. So Egypt never actually got the bomb. The German scientists were like, you know what? They killed he Heinz. This. Let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Poor
3: Heinz. We saw what happened to Heinz. What happened to us? Otto's a lifelong heavy smoker, like a lot of people were back in the day. In 1970, a cancerous tumor was discovered on his spine, which had no doubt spread from his lungs. After surgery in Hamburg to remove a couple of other tumours, he was temporarily paralysed. He didn't have a very good surgeon. And he had to eventually learn how to hobble around. But he's going to die very peacefully in his sleep back home in Madrid on July the 5th, 1975. And he would go to his grave as a multi-millionaire. That same year, his very embellished memoir, The Unknown War, was released. Such was Otto's stature in death that he had two funerals, one at a chapel in Spain, and his ashes were given a hero's welcome back in Vienna. At both funerals, former SS comrades attended, and Hitler salutes and Hitler songs were thrown at his casket. You can see video footage of his Vienna. It was kind of like the Jimmy Savile funeral in Leeds. It was like a Viking's funeral, and just everyone is throwing up Nazi salutes.
2: Wait, people were giving Nazi sleuths a savile? <laughs> they should have
3: been. <laughs> he, was, he was an evil fucker, too. Why not?
2: <laughs> um, you know, at no point in his life did Scorzani ever denounce Nazism.
3: Oh, no. He never did. Yeah, so he it was, was appropriate
2: for them to, to uh, you know, sing Hitler songs and Ziegheil.
3: Yeah, and um, so his grave is in Vienna. You can go and visit it. We will; it will be on our bucket list of things to do. One man who came to his funeral was his former Mossad handler Yosef Ranan. He was also an Austrian who had lost most of his family during the Holocaust, and he actually flew at his own cost to pay his final respects to Colonel Otto Skorzeny.
2: That's surprising.
3: But this is what lies at the heart of the horrible appeal for him, right? That even victims of genocide and murder can cooperate and even like people like him. The lines between good and bad it's never black or white or red or black. Otto was a PR dream in many ways. He's a brave, resourceful man who served for a very evil cause. He went to his grave an unrepentant Nazi. He's a disciple of the devil and to the devil he might be Jew if you believe in that sort
2: of thing. Well, I mean, he was he was a Nazi, and I I don't think he had any qualms about uh, aiding in the the murder and the genocide of Jews. But it's curious, though, why he would decide to work for Mossad. I mean, I think it was probably economical. It, definitely, it, it definitely influenced his uh, decision there. But Skorzani is unlikely to have assassinated Nazi scientists just to have his name removed from you know the Nazi hunters list. Especially the, since the Allies in West Germany declared him denazified already. So you wonder, like, was it just purely for money? Some people speculate that he actually felt sorry for his actions and the actions of the Nazis against the Jews during World War II. So maybe, I don't buy that. Maybe that was part I've, of the motivation.
3: I think this man just, like, loved the excitement. And I mean, all of this underworld stuff, it's exciting for me to tell people about it. And I can't only imagine what it must have been like. So I think it's kind of like once you've been a performer and you go out on stage and like, you know, you hear everyone clap and then you'll always have that need inside of you to hear people clap for you. And I think that's what this is. He just wanted to hear people clap for him. Maybe he
2: was satiating a need there, Uh, but a fascinating Nazi, definitely. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah, people, go, uh, There's, you know, there's a Netflix documentary that came out about uh, Otto in the past few years. I forget the name of it right now, but.
3: Yeah, I just watched it. Um, it's Spanish. But oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's really good. It's, it's under Spanish. an hour. Go yeah, for it.
2: Check it out. Uh, people, this is episode 886 here, Sick and Wrong. Got some phone calls coming up next. 323-522-4032 is the hotline number. Uh, but first, here's a quick message from our sponsor, Adam and Eve. It's butt plug month on adamandeve.com. Show that you still care by bringing something new into the bedroom. And by something new,
1: I mean a butt plug. Because if you order right now and use coupon code DIDDLE, you get 50% off your first item, a gift so sensual I can't even tell you about it on this podcast that talks about murder and bukkake. And on top of all of that, free shipping.
2: Support Sick and Wrong by supporting our sponsor, adamandeve.com, and making a purchase with coupon code DIDDLE. That's D-I-D-D-L-E. So you've got a few phone calls to get to here, Kate Rambo. 323-522-4032 is the drunk dial line number. Uh, you can also email us, podcast at uh, gmail.com. Remember, we are building out our backlog of calls, so we implore you to give us a ring. I think someone actually mentioned that the... Uh, Someone emailed me and was saying that that he was They thought the hotline number wasn't working, and I actually tested it out myself. And I forgot about the uh, the message I left on it. Have you ever? Have you ever actually listened to the message?
3: I've never rang the hotline number. What What is it?
2: If you can, if you can name the message or where where the message where I pulled the message from, because it's a sample. It's a okay. clip from something. If you can name where I pulled the message from, I'll send you a sick and wrong gift. So oh. just uh, email me if you know where the uh, the message from the sick and wrong hotline came from. Anyway, the first one here is uh, is uh, from a guy named Lucas who called in about a coworker death, which is a bit of a theme that we have going on right now.
0: Nice. Hey DMK, this is Lucas um, calling in for the coworker death figured I'd weigh in after you know over a decade because this is it was business as usual to me but apparently it's kind of sick and wrong. Around 2014 I was working at a manufactured housing plant in northern Indiana and one of my co-workers was tripping balls on break so at break time it was raining he was standing out in the rain kind of petting his face <laughs>
2: I'm amazed that anyone would go to work on acid.
3: Why would you go? Uh, just going to work on. I I used to go to work stoned all the fucking time. And when I worked in the kitchens, I used to take cocaine all the fucking time. And I just don't think I could do it now. I just don't want to be in a work environment while I'm on drugs.
2: Yeah, that was my whole thing, too, like in high school. And in uh, a work, too. I mean, now I couldn't imagine having to try. I couldn't. I don't think I'd be able to do my job high. But I was like, I just don't want to be around my, you know, coworkers. I don't want to be in right. my work environment. I don't want to be near my boss. Hi, it's just going to harsh my mellow, you know.
3: Yeah, Dr- all drugs are for fun, right? Like they're yeah. not for mixing. Don't mix business with pleasure. Like
2: I'd rather be at home watching a movie or doing something fun than sitting at my fucking cubicle hating my life.
3: Right.
0: Everyone knew it was high as a kite. Don't know what he was on, but he was obviously high at work. And a couple hours later, everyone's being asked to leave the building. And as I'm walking down the line to the break room, I see someone giving him CPR. He's laying there. Gray. (laughs) (laughs) And come to find out, Bob died. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah. Had a coworker OD while at work.
2: Now I'm wondering what he was doing. keep like yeah,
3: I wonder what he was on. Just definitely not LSD.
2: No, I mean, yeah, I'm not. I'm sure. I'm going for meth. Yeah, I'm thinking some kind of stimulant and just caused him to have a heart attack or something. I mean, maybe who knows? Maybe it was oxy. Bob
0: you
3: know, died. I guess
2: we'd have to know what year this was to really make an educated guess.
3: It's like on the day-to-day, one of my favourite sketches on the day-to-day, British viewers will, uh, of a certain age will remember this, is the Alan Partridge sketch where he's the security guard in the swimming pool. And he's like, in 1980, no one died. In 1981, no one died. In 1982, no one died. In 1983, someone died. In 1985, <laughs> it's like this guy, Bob died. <laughs> but no one else has died.
2: I don't think I've seen that. Sounds very British.
3: Oh, the day to day was brilliant. It was before Brass Eye. I'll send you clips from
2: it. I mean, I haven't seen that episode. I have seen clips of it. We actually used to uh, when we were doing Steel. our news segment. The uh, the intro music was from Day to Day.
0: Yeah, I love it. They gave us the rest of the day off, so that was pretty nice. One. Nice, but uh, and at my current job, I'm building RVs. And this was not that big of a deal, but the plant manager actually passed away. Early, early, mid 50s guy, chain smoker, ended up having a heart attack, so not terribly, terribly, uh, surprising. But, yeah, I've had a couple of coworker deaths, but didn't really think it was that big of a news, but, yeah, I saw a dead guy getting CPR, so that was kind of fun. <laughs> but yeah uh keep
2: it sick keep it wrong hey you know at least it's a bit of entertainment in your humdrum daily existence you know
3: i do it's kind of like bittersweet because i'll be like yeah just, yeah actually it'd be a fun day for me because i'm like oh my god shit yeah he's totally dead and then they're like and you get the afternoon off i would be like i don't get the afternoon off awesome can more people fucking die
2: the thing is, though, and this is maybe it's Murphy's Law, it's never the coworker who you want to die.
3: Want to die. die. Yeah, it's always you like, know? I wonder if Bob was cool Bob, and you really wanted bad Bob to die.
2: Well, that's what I wonder. I wonder if this guy was friends with Bob. Like, the guy that died at my work, I actually kind of liked the guy, and he helped me out. So I was kind of bummed, whereas I can probably get a cramp from writing down the names of all the people that I wouldn't mind if they <laughs> if they somehow died at work.
3: Have you found out what your coworker died from yet?
2: No, they haven't said, actually. I haven't asked anybody, but... Um,
3: that uh, that yeah. would eat me up inside. You know, one of my biggest pet hates is when people go, oh, and he died of cancer. And you're like, well, what type of cancer? Because there are millions of them. And they're like, I don't know. I didn't ask. Well, why didn't you?
2: I'm going to try to find you out on know. Monday. I know when uh, they sent out an email recently, I guess there's like a some kind of poster thing that they made for him. And we have to like book time to sign it. So I had to book a time slot to go sign the poster before, because I guess they're going to present it to his parents.
3: Oh my goodness. Why can't they just like, I don't know, put a card in like the break room. That's usually how it works.
2: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Do they have, I guess they probably do have death cards. Maybe. Yeah. They do have death cards. (laughs) Lucas, thanks for calling. After 10 years, after a decade of listening, he finally calls.
3: Thanks, Lucas. will
2: get you eventually. Give us a call back. I want to hear some more, uh, some, some more work stories. Um, but That's the thing. Blue-collar workers, when you work in, like, manufacturing or factories, you have the best stories.
3: Yeah, and I especially think blue-collar is different as well. Well, I suppose in office you form close friendships and you have buddies, yeah, but especially the people if you work are in so, a small office.
2: But the people are so lame. You know, they're all, like, you know – college educated they're all just so you know they they have pretty much just the same middle class lame backgrounds whereas you get a diversity of workers in blue collar environments
3: that's true yeah that's so i think the, true. the
2: potential for uh, hilarity is much higher the
3: thing as a blue collar worker myself the thing i like about blue collar is there's a lot more camaraderie between us and them and i just like that
2: yeah, you definitely don't have that, in... well, you kind of do in office environments, but not that much. You gotta, you have to be very careful who you can trust.
3: Yeah, you cannot trust a manager. Let's put it like that. They're all, they're all shits.
2: <laughs> or coworkers aspiring to be a manager. To be very careful. Oh, they're the
3: worst. Yeah. The bootlickers.
2: Oh, the bootlickers are the worst. Anyway, uh, this next guy is definitely not a bootlicker by any means. The Swede is calling him about <laughs> hey. driving under the influence. Oh wow. Is this Otto's theme song?
4: (laughs) Good dog, Herr D and Frue Kate. I heard during episode 173 that D made a statement about driving under the influence and his preferences in this regard. I tend to agree with the statement that he made during this specific podcast and I shall try to relate my own experiences uh, without leaning towards the overly loquacious.
2: What, what the hell did I say? That was, a, that was quite a few episodes back.
4: Oh, one,
3: seven, three. You probably were talking about how you like to, like, the certain you know, rules you'll have for driving drunk.
2: I mean, I was probably just talking about the necessity, you know, it's like, especially at that time, like in the, in the nineties, I mean, there's no Lyft or Uber, Michigan. It's not like we had like a, you know, reliable cab system either. I think it's like you either had to walk or fucking drive drunk. And I think most people- It's a very
3: American thing. I will say drunk. drunk
4: driving. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Not that I condone it in any way, but I mean, sometimes it was a necessity.
4: When I moved out from my parents' house, which I did three, three days after graduation, and I went to Norway, and I met this girl in Norway called Helena. Uh, she introduced me to the dark side of society, also to uh, drugs in my young age, uh, which I took to quite rapidly due to my previous clean living.
2: Uh, you know, there's a stripper named Helena at, uh, at the gold club that I used to work with. And uh, she introduced me to booty bumps. <laughs> Did so she also well su-
3: say, is she hot?
2: <laughs> oh, she was really hot. And uh, she had good cocaine too. So I can kind of empathize, you know, with them.
4: <laughs> and down to meet with her parents and her friends down in the su- southern part of Sweden over a pleasant and normal dinner this weekend. Uh, however, after the dinner, we imbibed me and Helena, uh, mushrooms, and proceeded to fuck for a couple of hours. After this strenuous activity uh, I suddenly got this cloudy thought that I should drive back home, uh, 600 kilometers uh, to my place in Norway and go to an after-party which my friend had that evening, instead of staying with her in the comforts of our bed for the evening. I started to drive out of Malmo and I reached the highway. I had a cigarette in my mouth, and I was only dressed in my underwear and socks The world had turned black and gray due to the mushrooms and the lights of the highway had started to transform into lines rather than points of light Something equivalent to the light speed effect they used in the Star Wars movies. I started to hyperventilate
2: he probably shouldn't have been driving here. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's a there's a fine line between driving while you're tripping balls off a of psilocybin versus like driving after eight beers. Yeah. You know, I don't think either are commendable, but I think I'd rather drive off of eight beers than tripping my fucking balls off of eating like, you know, two grams of mushrooms.
3: Oh, mate, I'm such like a Victorian about it. I just, I'm like, how many beers have you had young sir? You've had two? No, it won't happen for me. It wo- I will walk. I, shall w- I will get on my bicycle before I get in that motor vehicle with you. I will get the horse out the stable. Bring back horses. You know, this never happened. Do you mean they used to have horse crashes?
2: Yeah, I'm sure they did. I'm sure there was like uh, drunk-, drunk, drunk jockeys riding horses.
3: Well, no, we were were all jockeys at one point, weren't we, mate? Like 150 years ago when when all we had was horses. Do you think, like, you know, you'd be coming out of the saloon a little worse for wear and it's like 3 a.m. and you can't see much, you don't have your horse headlamp on, and you would, like, just run into another horse?
2: Well, I imagine what probably happens is you'd fall off your horse and get dragged. Or, if you're that drunk in the saloon, I imagine some cowboy guy would just put you up on his shoulder like fireman carry and just slump you over the horse and just smack it. Uh, and you'd, uh, yeah. you'd wake uh, up like I two hours later.
3: <laughs> yeah, and you're still on your horse. Bring back the Dude. horse days, you know. I just yes. think it was better. As much as I love cars, I just feel like we, I think there should be a choice between having a horse and having a car. For, oh, as we, have, a vehicle.
2: we have scooters now. Who needs horses?
3: I would rather have a horse than a scoot.
2: Well, I don't know. I would name my horse Benny. They're easier to park.
4: (laughs) I started to hyperventilate due to this overstimulation, and I took an off-ramp to a gas station and proceeded to top off my gas tank for the preceding journey. journey. Uh, What I hadn't realized uh, was that I had parked close to a papers manufacturing plant and there were guards patrolling this enclosed area by night. I immediately thought they were out to get me, so I crawled in the back seat of my car and I pulled out all of my clothes out of the bag I had with me and started pulling them on top of me, just to hide from the guards. Uh, I stayed like that, scared out of my mind for at least 5 hours. Uh, before calling Helena and her friend, guiding me back to whence I'd started to drive from.
2: Oh, she must've been impressed by that.
3: Yeah, you ditched me in the middle of the night and now you wanna come back, <laughs> <Fuck off.
2: laughs> Now you're hiding under a pile of clothes asking me to come rescue you. Yeah. <laughs> did, you, did you still get the fuck for hours when you returned? <laughs> That's what I'm wondering.
4: Uh, from that day forward, I never drove under the influence of anything. The swede.
2: Nice. I mean, that's the thing. I I don't condone drinking and driving, especially now. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not worth I it don't none. think I would kill somebody. I don't think I'd get in an accident. It's just not yeah, worth you... it if you get caught. You're fucked. It's not
3: worth it if you do kill someone. You don't want to be like Matthew Broderick. You don't want to be a murderer in that way. What? Just like just don't do it.
2: Definitely like... not, but I just don't think Odds are you're going to make it from point A to point B. It's just the, if you do get caught, if you do get pulled over, your life is going to be fucked for a long time. and It's going to cost a lot of money, so it's just not worth it. Take a cab. Take an Uber. You know, it's like I'm also 15 bucks.
3: I, I'm going to say, I, I don't condone this either, but I am from an area where, like, we hitchhiked and we were all fine. But this is the north of Britain, where nothing, unless Derek Bird is picking you up, you're totally fine. Nothing's going to happen to
2: you. You don't want to do that here.
3: Fuck no. I <laughs> would never hitchhike in LA. in LA. That's just like asking to be murdered.
2: You know, so when I was younger in high school, like we all drove drunk. Um, I mean, it just, you just kind of did. didn't? No one ever thought twice about that. But I didn't drive. I only drove really, really high on like acid and and, and mushrooms just a handful of times. Because that, that was kind of scary. Yeah, I remember like one time I was driving with a... My girlfriend and one of her friends at the time and we were a We did a this Alice in Wonderland Acid. I thought I was driving through a diorama. <laughs> like I was just like everything doesn't seem real. It's like all popped up. Like it, it's just like the dimensions of things that make sense. Yet I was still driving. You know, the I bet love you were machine. Going
3: Eight miles per hour, though, because every you you slow down on acid and everything slows down. Oh, yeah, <laughs> like you Who were just knows. like dawdling along. You weren't going to hit anyone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but I remember one time specifically, um that was really scary. Me and Kessler were at Michigan State University visiting some. We're we're still in high school, so we would have been like seniors in high school. So we'd have been probably around maybe seventeen or eighteen. I think I was seventeen. And uh, we were visiting some of our friends that had graduated the year prior at uh, Michigan State, and they all lived in this house. Um, and yeah, it was awesome because you'd go up there and like party with college chicks, you know, and get wasted. And so we go yeah. there, and we got mushrooms at this party. And so me and Kessler probably ate about an eighth apiece. So we were really fucking high, and sure enough, everybody passed out. And it's like maybe three thirty, four in the morning. And uh, no, it was probably actually, yeah, it was probably like 4, 4.30. And uh, we we're like, well, this is lame. Everyone's sleeping. I'm like, what are we going to do? And Castle looks at me. He's like, let's go see Jeff.
3: <laughs>
2: like my brother Jeff in Chicago. and We're in Lansing. That's like at least a five-hour drive. And so.
3: I, yeah, I love when you're really wrecked and you plan to do things like that. And then you start doing it you're like, oh,
2: my God. Oh, we did. We got in the <laughs> yeah. car. And it was like kind of snowy. So it was like sort of wet. it kind of like snow rain sort of is like, you know, that kind of mushy rain. Slush. Yeah, slush. It was slushy. And so we're driving, laughing our asses off high as fuck in his Delta 88. And we're going, I mean, he was going like 90 miles an hour. We're listening to Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. I remember specifically the song High Plains Drifter when he lost control of the car and it spun like we're in the middle of the highway. There's no one on the highway. And he was going like at least 90 miles an hour and it spun and he hit the dividers, like the cement dividers on the side, like smashed the front end of his car. It flipped around and smashed, like didn't flip, but it like, uh, you know, slid around and smashed the back end of the car. So his trunk was up and his hood was up and we were like horizontal across the highway and we're, and we just, you know, you could hear like high planes drifter and we're sitting there like, holy shit. And I was kind of laughing about it, but then I realized he was like, dude, what should we do? And I was like, well, let's get the fuck out of here. I mean, we're like, ha- you know, horizontal across a highway. So we like, you know, hauled ass, got off in the next exit and pulled into a gas station. Yeah. His whole front end of his car was smashed up and the back end of his car was smashed up. So we went in and got like some rope and just sort of tied it down <laughs> and then continued to go to uh, Chicago. <laughs> kind of sobered oh, us right. up a bit. Yeah, we. I remember we got there at like I don't know, probably like seven a.m. or something. Woke my brother up, and he's like, "What the fuck are you doing here?" We're like, came to party. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I've been like, "No, I need to sleep."
2: Yeah, it was funny because I remember we were gone for like I don't know, like at least four or five days. He got into a ton of trouble. From his his parents were really upset. I get back, and it was as if like the rabbi had no idea I'd even left. Like I was Hello, in high David. school. Yeah. Where have you been? I didn't even ask. And my mom, like, she was just like, hello. She's like, where have you been? And I was like, just going for a drive with Kessler. She's like, that's fun. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, okay. (laughs) Kessler got grounded. Um, Oh, that's good.
3: You dodged a grounding and you had a a cool adventure. And you didn't die. That's like all you want from a teenage story.
2: Yeah, surprising. Anyway, the takeaway here is (laughs) don't take mushrooms and drive your car uh so people call like the and wrong hotline 323-522-4032 uh big ups to all the listeners who support us on patreon i know we talk about it all the time but we do appreciate you helping us keep it sick and wrong every week patreon.com sick and wrong um also t public store we uh i am working on some new designs haven't done them yet um, you know it's funny the uh, rep over there reached out to me because she wants to do all these different promotions so she was like I'm going to help you make promotions for your social media I was like go ahead <laughs> so anyway you're going to probably be seeing some promotions very soon but if you want to get a t-shirt now or some Sick and Wrong swag just go to sickandwrongpodcast.com slash shop click on the picture of the Pope and uh, yeah, buy yourself something nice finally here's Sick and Wrong Song of the Week I was gutted to find out gutted. that uh, Dix Denny of yeah. the Weirdos died um, this past Sunday, we, you know, uh, March 12th, um, at the age of 65. Uh, Denny young. founded the band with his brother John in 1975, and the Weirdos are considered one of the most influential L.A. punk bands. Definitely. You know, Definitely. one of my favorites, for sure. Um,
3: There's only, like, so many good bands from L.A. as well. And they're one of them.
2: Uh, There's quite a few. There's definitely, I think, a better scene back then than there is now. Yeah. But the weirdos were uh, the weirdos were great. Um, They released the iconic uh, uh, "We've Got the Neutron Bomb" EP in the late '70s, as well as Destroy All Music. We're going to play a song off in a second. Uh, So, Dix formed the Weirdos in uh, 1975 in L.A. He was inspired. He and his brother were inspired by the Ramones. But they kind of like did their own sort of take on West Coast punk, which was I would say like edgier, louder than like uh, less. You know, because that's the thing. The Ramones were rhythmic. I mean, it was very catchy all their tunes. Whereas the weirdo, the weirdos were pretty heavy, you know, at the time and kind of kind of noisier. And, yeah um, i mean of
3: all the ramones worship bands they're definitely on the heavier side and there's no like like the ramones have ballads that yeah you know joey's songs there's no band there's no ballads with the weirdos but they're fucking catchy
2: i mean and plus the ramones were covering a lot of like you know surf rock songs and putting their own twist on it the, the weirdos weren't doing that um no. yeah but they uh they definitely put their own spin on uh on, on punk rock and define kind of, uh, you know, what uh, West Coast punk rock came to be. Um, I read this interesting review here. this funny review from Richard Cromolin from the LA Times who, saw, who covered a weirdo show in 1977. He said, this is how he described him. The fast, loud, simple accompaniment behind a bellowing vocalist who looks like a U.S. Marine undergoing a trying drug experiment makes for a strong physical display. Of rock and roll.
3: <laughs> what more do you want in a band? That's like such a selling point to me. I would have gone to all their gigs from then on.
2: They did put on a hell of a display of rock and roll. So uh, we're going to end the show here with one of my favorite weirdo songs, uh, Life of Crime, which is yeah. from their 1970 uh, 1977 EP, Destroy All Music. Uh, Life of Crime was covered by another one of my favorite bands, uh, Laughing Hyenas. John Brandon from Negative Approach has an amazing version of it. Yeah, I love that version too. Get a chance to hear that. Yeah. So we're going to end the show here with Life of Crime by the Weirdos. Rest in peace, Dick Statney. People will be back next week with episode 887. Until then, take it sleazy. What do you think you're doing?
1: Keeping the British end up, sir.